Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, October 21st. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the governor weighs in on pardons and the latest developments regarding Jackson's water system. Then, what a fix to the Affordable Care Act's family glitch means for Mississippians. Plus, a new guide to college admissions focuses on black families. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Tate Reeves issued the first pardon of his tenure yesterday with a formal ceremony on the grounds of the governor's mansion. The recipient was a turkey, and the gesture celebrated the partnership with the meal assistance nonprofit Extra Table Mississippi. Reeves says he hopes it will promote charitable donations during the upcoming holiday season. But during questions with reporters, the conversation shifted to other pardons, specifically for those Mississippians incarcerated for marijuana possession offenses. Reeves says he has no plans to follow the Biden administration's example. The power of the pardon um, that is granted to the, the governor um, and, and for that matter to the executive, the, the president as well uh, in the U.S. Constitution uh, is, a, is a power that I do not take lightly. Um, we obviously uh, are requested to look at the options uh, with respect to pardons regularly. Um, and in my three years in office, I have not yet uh, exercised that authority um, because I do take it so seriously and, and we would have to be absolutely convinced um, of the necessity to do so. I'm sure that your question um, has, has at least a little bit to do with the recent announcement made by um, the president in which um, he has uh, suggested that all governors uh, release everyone in prison um, that is uh, in prison due to drug charges. And, and what I have said over the last um, week or two since the president made that recommendation to governors is um, it's, a, it's a pretty naive request. Um, it doesn't really fully understand or appreciate uh, that um, there are many people in prison that have pled guilty to specific drug charges, but that doesn't mean that that's the only crime that they committed. In fact, uh, in many instances, those individuals uh, committed multiple crimes, pled down to a drug charge, 
uh, and were sentenced based upon the sentencing guidelines at the state level. Uh, I believe in our justice system. Um, it's not perfect. Um, we know that it's not perfect, uh, but um, the, the notion that individuals um, are tried by a jury of their peers has stood the test of time. Um, certainly not perfect, and there are mistakes made, and when there are mistakes, uh, there is a process uh, through the executive branch to deal with it. Reeves was also pressed on the ongoing dispute between state and city leaders over the next steps for Jackson's water system. Reeves and MEMA issued a request for qualifications for an outside vendor to manage operations of the whole system for a year. Reeves cites the work of the Unified Command as proof the state can adequately address the system's needs. What we have proven over the last 52 days is the water struggles in Jackson were specific to the incompetence of this administration and this mayor. Now, what we did when we came in on August the 29th is we set up a unified command structure. Uh, we uh, named both the Department of Health and the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency as leads on that. And literally within 72 hours, we had ensured and restored water pressure throughout the system to the entire city of Jackson. Less than 72 hours. Less than 15 days later, we were able to lift the boil water notice. Again, running water systems isn't that challenging. It's not that difficult. The city of Jackson released its own proposal request for a one-year emergency contract yesterday after discussions with both the Department of Justice and Environmental Protection Agency. Reeves says those actions indicate the city is ready to operate the water system and the state of emergency he issued to support the maintenance of the system could be coming to an end. What the mayor has said is that now that it's time to pick a vendor... Now that it's time to reward a contract, much like the scenario that we have seen with garbage, the mayor has decided it's the city and only the city that can participate. Now, what we are looking at today is the mayor has said through his actions, because actions speak a lot louder than words, that the city is prepared to run the water system. What the EPA has said is that they are evidently okay with that. They certainly have the opportunity to, through a consent decree, to take over the water system. Certainly has seen similar actions in other jurisdictions over long periods of time. But the reality is that the emergency, the fact that the state has come in and run this water system, is nearing its end. We know that. In fact, the initial emergency was in effect for 30 days. We extended it 30 days later. But what we're looking at is um, in the request for proposals, uh, the city says that they can have a water operator into that plant by November the 17th. And so I would anticipate uh, that the state and the state of emergency will end sometime between now and November 17th, but no time later than November 17th. 
Yesterday, the Environmental Protection Agency announced it's investigating whether Mississippi state agencies discriminated against the city of Jackson by refusing to fund improvements to its failing water system. This comes days after a letter was sent to the governor's office by two congressional chairs with questions about how the state legislature has allocated federal aid for water system maintenance. Coming up, what a fix to the Affordable Care Act's family glitch means for Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you love MPB, wouldn't you love to work here? We're a lot more than radio voices. We're looking for teachers and administrative assistants. We need professionals to work with social media, HR, and IT. Remind your friends and family who are looking for their dream job to consider Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Check out the careers link from mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi families that were once ineligible for health insurance subsidies through the Affordable Care Act may have new opportunities for assistance. The IRS has finalized a new regulation that replaces a 2013 agency one that created what is known as the family glitch. Lottie Miner is program manager for the Oak Hill Regional Community Development Corporation. The organization helps residents enroll in the ACA. She shares more on the enrollment, the changes, cost-saving benefits, and helping families fix that glitch. The cost of that um, Inflation Reduction Act, there's always extra opportunities like the increased subsidies will continue, things like that that will give people opportunities um, to get um, uh, more robust cost-saving measures with their insurance. So there's always extra opportunities. And, of course, people have to remember that the special enrollment periods are always going on. Anyone that has had a life change can enroll at any point um, as long as it's um, within um, close proximity to the date that that life change happened. The IRS changed the rule for the family glitch. Can you explain Mm -hmm. what that is? Historically, the way that employer-based insurance has worked is that it is affordable for one person, but then when you try to add your dependents, it skyrockets. And this has gone on for a number of years. So you find you found these families uh, opting to try to get marketplace coverage. However, the way that it was initially set up, that marketplace coverage um looked at the fact that, well, this insurance is affordable for the one person. It did not take into account that there was a family involved. Let's look at a person who has a job and has insurance offered through that employer. And they have a family, though. So when they apply for the employer-based insurance for themselves, it is affordable. When they try to add their family, now we're talking about the job, when they try to add the family, the cost becomes astronomical. And we know we hear that all the time on the job. So what those families, what those individuals were doing is they would then come over to try to apply for marketplace insurance. 
And the way that the IRS was looking at that person's income is they were basing it on that one person. Um, to qualify for subsidies or to qualify if you have employer-based insurance, that insurance and that job had to be uh, more than 98 or 9.82% of their income. But that was looking at only the one person. How did that hurt families? Oh, it hurt them tremendously because you had children and women, uh, usually the dependents of whoever the primary breadwinner may have been, who were not able to get any coverage. Or or it could have been a single family home, or I mean, I'm sorry, a single parent home where the mom had insurance and she wanted to cover her children. Now, the beauty of that is sometimes they qualified for Medicaid or CHIP. But what about those families who didn't, those children who didn't? Or maybe there's a family where there's a wife and some children or a husband and some children. Those people went without coverage, unfortunately. So now the IRS has changed the way that they view that so that now those families can apply and get coverage, potentially with subsidies, through the marketplace. And so this gives them the option to turn to the marketplace and insure their family. Yes, yes. Okay. Good idea, right? Absolutely. Why did it take so long? You know, that's 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 a hard question. So we have to just be thankful to the Biden administration for that. Um, because we know long before there was any such thing as the Affordable Care Act, job based insurance was already inching up for family. And in Mississippi, most people do qualify for a subsidy, which allows yes, them to get at least one uh, physical per year without any cost. Well, even if they don't qualify for subsidies, part of essential health benefits includes things like, um, you know, your, sub- your, um, your physicals, your mammograms, your pap smears, things like that. And those are at no cost. Those are at no cost. And most people do qualify for subsidies, right, in the state? Most people in Mississippi qualify for some type of cost-saving reduction. Lottie Miner with Oak Hill Regional CDC, thank you so much for your time and clarifying this and giving us a handle on how folks can get information and find out more. How can they reach you? Yes, ma'am. They can reach us at 662 298-3584. And if they are not near our headquarters, that's our headquarters number, we will connect them with someone in an area that is close to them. And they can also go to our website or Facebook. Again, thank you so much, Lottie Miner with Oak Hill Regional CDC. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. ACA enrollment begins November 1st and continues through January 15th. Coming up, a new guide to college admissions focuses on black families. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. 
or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. For Timothy Fields, May of 2020 was part of a racial awakening. The death of George Floyd and the subsequent response from the black community elevated what he saw as discrepancies in his field of work, college admissions. So Fields teamed up with Shereem Hendren Brown to develop the Black Family's Guide to College Admissions. The two men share more on education, parenting, and race, beginning with Fields. We just saw, you know, with everything going on, there was just a theme of undermatching, uh, particularly for black students, uh, you know, overlooking of historically black college universities, and then just, you know, a narrative of, you know, black families not getting enough information about the college admission process. And so we wanted to put together a resource uh, to help them, to make them speak specifically to their experiences, um, you know, to your question, what is different? I think there are a couple of things. Uh, the first is just the idea of historically black college universities and them having such a major uh, position in um, the college-going uh, landscape. And so what does that mean for black families as far as making those decisions and going to those institutions? And then I think there are a lot of uh, decisions that black families have to think early on about where they're placing uh, their students. Uh, you know, what are the trade-offs that they go to a quote-unquote good school that's predominantly white where they're in the minority? Uh, you know, what cultural experiences are they going to have? What is, you know, going to opportunities that are going to be available to them? And so these are things that conversations that happen every day uh, within black households, and we wanted to make sure that those were available uh, to them. Briefly, give me an example of what you see students struggling with when they're trying to make decisions about college. Yeah, so I think one of the things students struggle with is just kind of like what should they be thinking about in the process? Uh, I think too often the process is driven by rankings. It's driven by what family members did. It's driven by what happens on ESPN, any number of factors. But, you know, we essentially feel that there should be four primary things that should guide this process. The first is cost. How much does it cost to go to school? What resources does your family have available to you? Then location. You know, where is this? you know, university physically in proximity to you? Um, is it someplace that you're going to feel safe, that you're going to feel welcome, that you're going to feel that you can thrive at? So the location is important. Then next, what are the academic majors? I think, you know, those of us who went to college know that more than likely you're going to change your major two, three, four, maybe more times. And having, you know, colleges that have academic options beyond what you immediately may want to major in, but to have some additional options is going to be very important. And then what is your career trajectory going to be? What internships, what opportunities are going to be available at the school to help prepare you for what you're going to do after college? And so we think that these four pillars should be the what should guide this process. Obviously, there are other factors that can be considered, uh, but we think those are going to be the most important to kind of serve as a foundation to begin the college admission process. What about institutions who provide very good scholarships? Yes, I mean, obviously cost should be a driving factor. And so, yes, if an institution has a very good scholarship or a need-based financial aid program, 
that allows uh, for, you know, students to not have to take on as much debt, then absolutely. And that's where why we want cost to be the primary guiding focus. You know, we wouldn't say we want a student to go to any institution if it's going to, you know, lead them to be in debt. Um, currently, there's a lot of talk about, you know, loans and loan forgiveness and things of that nature. If we can avoid that, that would always be, you know, the primary factor. But we also don't want people to, you know, automatically assume if I take on a loan that that's a bad thing. If there's a school that a student wants to attend, uh, we think that loan potentially could be an investment in their future. And so that is something that they should consider but also, you know, using, you know, financial aid in a very smart way and not just taking out loans just unnecessarily or that could potentially put you in, in debt that will, you know, kind of stunt you, your growth in your uh, life beyond college. What you're discussing sounds like some of the same things any parent would be concerned about. The difference being that there are historically black colleges that serve a predominantly black population. What is it about HBCUs that you stress in your book for students thinking about going that pathway? I think HBCUs have a, have really elevated themselves in just recent years given, you know, everything from Deion Sanders, who was on 60 Minutes with Beyonce's homecoming performance, you know, the, the recent donations of the Netflix CEO and, and, and Amazon. You have to remember that HBCUs have been around for 200 years. But the bottom line is that the spotlight is now on them, which is a great thing, but hopefully that will also equal more philanthropy going towards them. I think what's important for black students to know is that HBCUs historically have, you know, for lack of a better term, celebrated and not necessarily tolerated students. They really make sure that there are relationships built there that about uh, achieving high goals and getting through and the commitment to service. So I think in this time, um, culturally, where we're a country where we're questioning a lot about race, that HBCUs need to be strong consideration just for personal edification, for cultural relevancy, to make sure that, you know, amongst a predominantly white institution, because real life is that life is integrated. Absolutely. But hopefully your life is a long life, and four years is just a, 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 you know, a smidgen of your life experience. So, again, it's really a personal decision, but we do hope that HBCUs will take this opportunity to really broadcast their message, and we're trying to help them amplify that, not that we you know, have a preference for one or the other, but we do want to ride the HBCU popularity rate. Your title also mentions parenting. How does parenting play into selecting a college? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'm parenting, you know, we want parents to be have a partnership in this process that obviously, uh, you know, the student is being thoughtful, thinking about where they want to consider, you know, factoring in all the factors that we said, cost, location, uh, career, um, academic majors, those are important. But we also want the parents to be part of the conversation because there's obviously the financial piece. The parents are going to kind of be the people funding this. Uh, but then we also, you know, want the parents to have an open conversation about what are the resources available for the student? What are the needs of the student emotionally? You know, you know, what is kind of been that student's upbringing? What type of environment would be best for them? And we just don't want parents to leave it up to the child, be like, this is their decision, just go for it. 
uh, because we think that, you know, it needs to be a partnership that happens not only, you know, in high school, but starting in middle school, because, you know, the parents know what's best for the child. They know, you know, what the child's strengths are. They know what the child may need. And, you know, sometimes children, they can't see that. And so it has to be a partnership to really, you know, have this uh, conversation. And then, you know, a lot of times, depending upon the schools, students can't advocate for themselves with college counselors and really articulate themselves as far as what they need are. And so the parents have to be involved in that process as well as far as having a conversation on how some of these college lists are formed, what type of students schools should be, the student be thinking about, you know, what are the best classes for the student. And so these are all things that have to happen in tandem and not just being put on the student. Timothy Fields and Shereen Herndon Brown, the authors of The Black Family's Guide to College Admissions. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this book. Thank you very much. We're excited to be here. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.